Well, good morning. My name's Craig. I serve as minister in training here at the church. Let me add my welcome onto Owen's that you received earlier in the service. And of course, we carry on our series looking at the book of James. If you think back to last week, we had a bit of a, a helicopter view, looking down from above at the book of James as a whole, looking at uh, the whole wood, so to speak, and then just dipping into the trees of chapter four at the end. Well, this week and next, we are properly in the trees in chapter four, and this week we'll spend our time in verses one to 10. But before we get there, let me just remind us of the three questions we looked at last week, the three questions we asked of the text. The first question we asked was, well, why was James written? Well, you read the book and it becomes clear that people in the church, people in these churches, well, they aren't behaving too well towards one another. And what you see as well is that these Christians are in danger of wandering from the truth. And the reason why they're not behaving well, the reason why they're in danger of wandering is because of their double-mindedness, literally their two-souledness. That was why James was written. Our second question was, how was James written? Well, we saw that it was written most likely to a specific church or, or a group of churches we see in the start. And the letter begins quite general. But as we go through, it gets more and more and more and more specific. There's a real sharp point, though, a real edge in chapter four. So we asked, why was James written? We asked, how was James written? And thirdly, last week, we asked a question, so what does chapter four add to the book? Well, the problem in this church we saw was that it's not false teaching, but rather it's dysfunctional relationships with each other. And what we see is that when, when people aren't getting on with one another, when they're perhaps getting angry all the time quickly towards each other, or perhaps just being a real nippy sweetie to one another, we see that actually it could be a theological problem. And that's why I see James takes his readers from their behavior with one another, then in chapter four to their behaviors towards God. And with this in mind, let me pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray together. Father, we heard read from your word earlier that we are to humble ourselves before you. And so we want to do that this morning. We want to come to you knowing that we have nothing that we can offer you. that we need you. So may you speak to us, we ask, by your spirit, through your word this morning. As we look at these 10 verses at the start of chapter four, may you incline our heart to your word, we ask, and not to anything else. Nothing else that this world or anybody has to offer us. Open our eyes, we ask. See wonderful things in your word. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast covenant, faithful love we ask. And it's in the name of Christ, our King, our joy we pray. Amen.
So let's remember the problem in the church. It's a theological problem. They are double-minded towards God. They are committing spiritual adultery and in danger of wandering away. So what's the solution then? What does James think they should do? Well, what do, you, what, what do we do in that situation? Naturally, we perhaps think, well, we need, we need more Bible teachers. We need better Bible teaching. We want to teach them properly, correctly, pointing them to the Lord, how wonderful he is, have them go after him wholeheartedly. And in one sense, that's right. That's what James does in this letter. But to the people he's writing to, well, actually, he says to them the opposite. Look back to verse 1 of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, why is that? Why did James feel the need to write that to these churches? Well, let's think what's going on here in the church. Let's set the scene here. There's this church, there's these people here clearly wanting to be teachers. And I think from the letter, you can see that they want the, the influence, the, their prestige, the, the money. They want the limelight to be on them. But in chapter 3, James has said, no, don't become a teacher. Why? Because you're fork-tongued. You're double-minded when it comes to your speech. And because you are a teacher, you are speaking more. So you have more to be judged on. And then James said to these wannabe teachers, as we saw with Harry, that you also don't have the wisdom from above. You don't humbly seek that wisdom. Instead, you go after the devilish worldly wisdom. Look down at verses 17 and 18, where we see how beautiful this heavenly wisdom is. But notice the flow from the text. We have this picture here of this wonderful wisdom. But then in the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, becomes clear that these wannabe teachers do not have this wisdom. And James gets the real issue here to help these Christians, to help these people who want to be teachers. He says three things to them. First off, he says, you avoid the real problem in verses 1 to 3. Then he says, your adulterous actions have made you enemies with God, verses four to five. So humble yourself before God, verses six to 10. That's our three points. That's the roadmap of where we're going. So let's look at our first point together, where James says to these wannabe teachers, you avoid the real problem. Let me read for us again our opening few verses. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Did you hear that word there repeated? You You, you, 15 times James says it here, just in these three verses. 
James isn't holding back now. This isn't the perhaps hypothetical situation of chapter two. He has the full attention of the readers now. The gloves are off and he is going for it. He's been like the special forces soldier sneaking up and now he is going to make that hit. And James is asking these rhetorical questions where the obvious answer is, of course, yes. But what's the issue? What's causing these problems here? Well, we see in these verses, it's their desires and their pleasures. Do you see that in the text? Have a look at the end of verse one, the start of verse two, we see desires mentioned there twice and then pleasures at the end of verse three. These desires, they're, they're battling within themselves. Desires and pleasures, well, in and of themselves, they're not a bad thing, are they? The question is, what's driving them? What types of desires, what types of pleasures are these? Well, James uses one word here for these two things, hedone. Of course, we get our word hedonism from. So what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that these Christians are pleasure seekers. But their pleasure is not in God. The pleasure that they are seeking is entirely selfish. And the way they want to achieve their selfish pleasures, well, it's by becoming teachers. That's the gateway into getting what they want. And they don't want anybody else to get it. Have a look at verse two here in chapter four. I don't think here James means that people are physically killing each other. It's quite clear from the introduction. Can you really imagine James writing to the 12 tribes scattered? Now I know that you're killing and murdering each other, but we'll get to that later on. Well, no, it can't mean that, can it? No, instead what he means is that the attitude underneath their actions is the same as murder. It's the same as what we saw a few weeks ago uh, with the guys from St. Andrews, wasn't it? With the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says. Cutting people down, trying to get them off the radar so that you can get what you want. What is causing these fights and quarrels? People have what you want. These wannabe teachers, they, the reason why they're not seeking wisdom, the reason why they're speaking carelessly is because they want to be exalted. Verse three, even when they do ask something from God, it's for their gain so that they can be exalted. They want to be well thought of. Just think of the, the double-minded Christian today. Think of the person who perhaps wants to be the top dog in the church. On a Sunday, they are uh, serving, they're open, they're welcoming to people. They're really keen, they're, they're, they're respectful to people. But the rest of the week, not a word about Jesus. Perhaps not even a word to the Lord himself in prayer. Or think perhaps of the, the student in the Christian union. They want to be well thought of. They perhaps want to be on CU exec or are on CU exec. They're at equip on a Tuesday, they're active, they're serving. But they're laughing at everything the world laughs at. They're drinking away just like the world is. 
seeking the same pleasures as everybody else on campus. See, a double-minded Christian does not ultimately seek to serve God, just to serve themselves. After all, as Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Sure, they may pray for noble-sounding things. Lord, make me a better evangelist. Lord, help me to, to pray more eloquently. Lord, make me a fabulous host and hospitable. Make me a captivating preacher, a wonderful singer of your psalms. But the reason why they pray these things is, as James says, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If all of this describes you, if you're a double-minded Christian, then you need to wake up. Stop fighting with your brothers and sisters. Stop seeking to, to tear them down, whether it's, it's openly or, or behind their back. What you desire is only for your glory and not for Jesus' glory. James is saying that the reason why you aren't getting on with so-and-so if you're a double-minded Christian has nothing to do with them, but it's you. You think that they're getting in your way, in your spotlight, your stuff. Yes, people may have acted badly towards you. They may have provoked you in what they said or what they did, but your response, that's your responsibility. And your negative response is because they have something that you want. But for the single-minded Christian listening, remember the, the single-minded Christian, that's the repentant Christian. And, and here's a warning as well. Make sure that we're examining our motives, examining our prayers. When you are in a disagreement with somebody, why, why is that? What is it you're praying for? Why are you praying for that thing? And if you've been pleading with the Lord in prayer about something and he hasn't answered that prayer, well, don't read this verse and just give up. Instead, be like the parable of the persistent widow who prays and prays and prays. God loves to hear your prayers. See, the, the key difference is that the single-minded Christian, they are aware of the problem. They don't avoid it. They are aware and they repent and they fight against their sinful desires and instead seek to glorify God. They perhaps pray those same noble prayers that I mentioned before, but for the glory of Christ. So ultimately, if he says no to you and yes to somebody else to answer that prayer, then that's okay. Because you know that God's glory is more important than your glory. These wannabe teachers, they avoid the problem, says James. And then in verses four to five, James says that their adulterous actions have made them enemies with God. The way that the Christians in this letter have treated one another shows that they, that they are double-minded. They may profess Christ as Lord, but they live just like the world. And so they have hopped into bed with the world and therefore made themselves enemies of God. Isn't that what James says? Isn't that a scary thought? Because it should be.
James is saying that to be double-minded is to live like the world, to go after its selfish pleasures and to flirt with the world in that way is to break that marriage relationship. And not just break that relationship, but become an enemy of God. And the thing is with this, we didn't start neutral. We didn't start in the middle. Like a marriage, as I said last week, God, he has made vows to us and we to him. But these wannabe teachers have turned their back on God. Yes, they may be standing beside him. They've turned their back on him and they are facing the world. It's just like Israel, isn't it, in the Old Testament? Remember what they were like. Israel was pictured as, as God's bride and he their groom. But despite saying that they followed Yahweh, despite saying that they followed the God of the Bible, while well, they lusted after the things of the world. They sought their security, their identity in those things. And James is saying, you are doing just what they did. Your desires are at war within you. You long for the stuff of the world. And so you've jumped into bed with the world. Two tongues and two wisdoms in chapter three. Two friendships in chapter four. So the question for us this morning is, are you a friend or foe of God? But God doesn't want it to be this way. What amazing grace. Have a look at verse five. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? You can search your Bible. You can copy and paste this into Bible Gateway. And I'm pretty confident you won't find this verse anywhere in the Bible. See, what James is saying is that if you look at any story in the Bible, it says that God wants us. He wants us to be wholehearted towards him as he has been, will be, and always will be towards us. God jealously longs and yearns for us to be wholly his. I mean, imagine a wife with a lover. Would not be a bit odd if the husband was a bit easy-ozy about the whole thing? A bit indifferent? See, in, in any real marriage, there is that exclusivity between two people. There is that jealousy for the love of one another. Not a jealousy that is crippled with doubts, with uncertainty, but a jealousy of single-minded devotion that forsakes all others. See, James is being really strong here, isn't he? Imagine someone came to me and that they're, they've just told me that they're having an affair. Like James, I, I, I would speak to them quite intensely, not to condemn them, but to get across that what they are giving up is so good, so good for something that just won't last. You're giving up in this wonderful thing. It's gone. You're walking away. You're committing adultery. And don't be surprised when that divorce comes. But it doesn't have to be that way. James wants the adulterous wife, the double-minded Christian, to go back to the whole-hearted husband, the Lord who is full of mercy and grace. 
He wants a complete Christian. And if you're listening and you feel the tug on your heart, that you're aware that you've been tempted by the allures of the world and living just like the world, then hear this warning. Ask the Lord to pull out those roots in your lives and to stick with him. Because the single-minded Christian is the repentant Christian. James has said that these Christians ignore the real problem in verses one to three, that the issues in the church are not with somebody else, but in their own hearts, that they are responsible for their bad behavior. He said that they ignore the consequences of their actions, that because of their double-mindedness, they are committing adultery against God and so are enemies of God. So how can we be safe? How could these people he's writing to possibly be safe? How can you be safe if you're an enemy of God? Well, it's our last point from verses six to 10. Humble yourself before God. James hasn't been pulling any punches. He's been a doctor telling it straight to a patient who's been refusing to listen. He's seen the symptoms. He's done the diagnosis. And now it's time for the treatment. But... Some of my favorite verses in the Bible begin with that word, but. Look at verse six. But he gives more grace. God's grace is bigger than our double-mindedness. If when we've been going through James, if you've perhaps been reading it in your quiet time each morning, if you have any awareness, you will have just been aware of the struggle in your life with sin that this book throws in our face. You'll find the book of James not just challenging at times, but if we're honest, just uncomfortable because it gets so close to us. We read about the problems in this church James is writing to and we're aware that the seeds of those problems are in our hearts as well. And we can think of times when we have thought the same as these people and perhaps even acted the same as them. But God gives more grace. He gives greater grace. He gives mega grace. All is not lost. We may be wandering. We we may this morning feel the passions in our hearts at war within us. We may have messed up this week and caused this relational uh, strife but God gives more grace. As one Christian famous, he said, there is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in me. There's more grace in Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. I think of that hymn. My sin, oh, the bliss of his glorious thoughts. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. There is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in us. He is greater, he is stronger, he is more powerful than our wandering and our double-mindedness and he wants his wife to return to him. Praise God we see here for him initiating the reconciliation 
he gives more grace. That doesn't mean we don't do anything, though. Grace demands a response. James goes to Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God's grace produces in us a response. If God gives grace to the humble, well, now is the time to repent of our pride, to submit ourselves to him, submit our desires to him. And there's no way out of pride than to, to admit that we're wrong. See, at first God gives us grace and then there's commands for us to, to obey. He gives, uh, I think it's 10 commands in verses 7 to 10, explains it in, in couplets. But really, they're all saying the same thing. It's all post-exile language to say one thing. Repent and believe. It's one point he says here. But sometimes we need to hear the same thing 10 times, don't we? Especially when we're not listening. Let's look at these uh, couplets together. First, James says that in light of God's grace towards, towards them, James calls these Christians in their humility to show wholehearted allegiance. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Think of what the earthly wisdom, the demonic wisdom, and what it produced in chapter three we saw with Harry. Produced envy and selfish ambition. There you find disorder and every evil practice. James says, resist the devil and his wisdom. Fight against it. Make war against it. And turn to God and the devil will flee from you. Actually, if we're honest, the question is, do we want to? We love the idea of turning to God. But do we want to turn our, our back on that thing? On what the world and it offers? It's one thing to recognize sin in our lives and come to the Lord. It's another to turn away from it completely. The spouse may genuinely want to be reconciled, but do they also want to give up that lover? But look at the promise. Come near to God and he will come near to you. It's like the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? The father running out to get his son. What grace. Our second couplet is to do with getting clean. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I take it purify means to, to become single-minded. But notice that there's an external cleanliness as well, an, an act of getting rid of those external sinful things, getting rid of those things that lure you away. Third couplet, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is telling us that when we, we hear about God's grace, when we experience it, well, it causes us to grieve our sin. In one sense, it's really easy to sing about God's grace, which you will do shortly, and not to be affected by that grace that radically transforms our lives. What I found is that when the Lord shows me more and more how vile and disgusting my sin is, especially found during lockdown, I wonder if you found that as well, that the more I grieve my sin, 
But then the more I'm worn over, worn over again and again by God's amazing grace, the more I'm won over by this faithful, wholehearted husband to a wandering sinner like me. And then comfort in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. To be proud is to be an enemy of God. Unkind, selfish behavior in the church is the behavior of enemies of God. But the humble, all those who repent of their sins, submit to God, he will, he will lift up. To dual lifestyle people in the church, the double-minded, if you continue down this road, this passage is a warning, isn't it? If you think, well, it's okay, I go to church, I'm... I'm a member, I serve, I've been to prayer meetings, even the ones on Zoom right the way throughout lockdown. Well, you're in trouble. James says you avoid the real problem. Your adulterous actions have made you enemies with God. So humble yourself before God. But to the single-minded Christian, there will be times when you, when you speak against a brother or sister if you're challenged, you might be tempted to, to wriggle out of it. Oh, and we need to remember this warning as well. And to the single-minded Christian, there are, there are times when, when we feel a bit wobbly. When we see these seeds of double-mindedness in our own hearts. Or remember, the complete Christian is the repentant Christian, not the perfect Christian. The single-minded Christian is the repentant Christian, not the perfect Christian. A broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. But to close, let me read a section from Luke's Gospel. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18, and let me read from verse 9. Luke 18 from verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If this morning you think you're confident, you're fine in yourself or you're in danger. But if you're in the corner, beating your breast, 
you're probably okay. Because God gives more grace. Before I close in prayer, let's take a moment to reflect in the quiet before God. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, keep us humble, we ask. May you help us to live lives of repentance, seeking to live wholeheartedly to you. Father, help us to reflect upon the way we act, the way we speak, the way we respond, the things that we pray for. Help us be people who are seeking your glory and not ours, so we don't get annoyed when somebody else gets something, some ministry perhaps that we think we should get. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. Thank you that the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ is far greater than any of our sin. But help us to respond to your grace, to seek to live wholeheartedly after you. For we know as we sung last week at the end of our service, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. And as we'll sing in a moment, by grace you lead the sinner home. Father, we confess that we are sinful people. Some of us double-minded, but at the very least all of us wobbly. And we thank you for your grace, that you are the one who leads us home. So keep us faithful in that we ask to live out what James has called us to do here. And forgive us of our many sins. In the name of Christ, our King, we pray. Amen.